Good morning, humans. Good morning. Good Monday morning. It is Monday. Yes, I know, but it's also spring here in Minnesota, and we can all be happy about that. Oh my God. You know, I mean, just think of it what it was like two weeks ago. And tomorrow is May Day. Hooray, hooray. Um, before I get started, oh, by the way, you're listening to Ellie, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0. I think it's probably always good to mention who I am and what this show is. Um, before I get started, though, I want to thank listeners who have called in and reached out to me um, after I lamented uh, a couple of weeks ago about never hearing from anyone um, in relation to this show. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for doing that. Please continue to do that. And the email is le2.0radio at gmail.com. People have been trying to get a hold of me at le2.0. That will not work. All right. Um, well, here we are. And you know that this show is about um, idealism, a word that we hardly ever use anymore. Or we ever hardly ever hear in social media. Um, I call myself a practical idealist, and this show has two different segments. One that is an A segment where I talk about an idealist or the work of an idealist, and then I talk on, in the B segment about my work uh, as a practical idealist trying to make the world a better place. And I know that many people out there are trying to do the same thing. It's not all about me. I'm relatively no one special. I just happen to get lucky in a variety of ways. And one of those ways I'm lucky is that I have this radio show. But for our A segment today, I want to talk about a man named Johan von Hulst, who died last month in March at age 107. Now, Johan was not someone I had ever heard of until after his death. He was a politician in the Netherlands and also a university professor and author. I'm talking about him today because he did something as a young man during World War II while living in Amsterdam. That something that he did was quite remarkable. In 1942, Johann was the director of the Reform Teacher Training College, a religious seminary on Plantage Middenlaan, a street in Amsterdam. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that I'm murdering the name of the street, uh, Plantage Middenhan. Middenlan, excuse me. And I need to lay out and give you a word picture a little bit about the physical location of various buildings in this story. These are buildings on Plantage uh, Middenlan. Across the street from the seminary where Johann was the director, was a building that served as the deportation center for Jews um, during the Nazi occupation. It was the, actually the first step that uh, Jewish um, people in Amsterdam uh, were sent to prior to being um, sent to concentration camps. So it was a processing building. Well... On the street, so across the street from the uh, seminary was this deportation center. And then uh, on the same street next door to the seminary was another building. And that building was a place where children of the Jewish families were taken while their parents were separated from them uh, during the processing. So... Uh, when Jewish families arrived at the door deportation center, I know I'm making it sound so like normal, which of course it absolutely wasn't. 
But when families, Jewish families, arrived at the deportation center, the children would be separated from the families and taken across the street, across Plantage Middenlan, to a building located next door to the seminary that Johan oversaw. So hopefully you have the picture now. So you have two buildings next to each other, the seminary and the building housing the Jewish children. Both buildings shared a common garden. There was a big hedge that separated the backyards of the two buildings. Unbeknownst to the Germans, a Jewish collaborator with the Germans and others, so he was a double collaborator, like a double agent, um, and that collaborator and others began a back-channel secret operation to arrange for Dutch families to quote-unquote adopt the Jewish children that were being housed in this building next to Johann's seminary. This, uh, uh, the, the overall plot involved surreptitiously removing children's names from a registry that the Germans used to keep track of people that they were deporting. Remember, the, Jew, the Germans were very efficient, and they liked their records. And it required recruiting Dutch families who had, now get this, facial and other characteristics that would match the child to be quote-unquote adopted. So let's just stop and think about this. You have in place many people, non-Jews, in Amsterdam, risking their lives to save children and babies who otherwise we, they knew were going to, to be sent away from Amsterdam to concentration camps and, of course, be killed. All of these people conspired. So, Johan comes into the picture because he arranged for the Jewish children to be handed over the hedge in the backyards between the building that housed the children and the seminary. And jo Johan had, had to then figure out how to get the children and the babies from his seminary to their new Dutch families. And remember, you know, the Germans have a huge presence right across the street from Johan's seminary. So, Johan is using his imagination along with his um, collaborators, using their imagination to get the kids out of the seminary. They were doing it in bags, in sacks, in laundry baskets. They did this for 19 months until September of 1943 when one of the leaders and the last 100 ch children that were in this building were sent to concentration camps. Apparently, word came down that this was going to be the last batch. But before that happened, they had rescued between 500 and 1,000 Jewish babies and children. There was one last batch of children to be saved. And later, Johann would talk about knowing that the Germans were coming to take the last group of children and shutting down the child processing center. And in an interview that he gave... Um, uh, when he was like 103, Johann said this, quote, Now imagine 80, 90, or perhaps 70 or 100 children standing there, and you have to decide which children to take with you. That was the most difficult day of my life. You know for a fact that the children you leave behind are going to die. I took 12 with me later on. I asked myself, why not 13? This man 
who had saved so many people obviously struggled with the idea that he had not saved more. In 2012, when Johan was 101, he was celebrated by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, who said this, We say those who save one life saves a universe. You saved hundreds of universes. I want to thank you in the name of the Jewish people, but also in the name of humanity. Johan replied, talking about the children he could not save. Quote, I can only hope the angels may conduct you into paradise, unquote. Johann's courage and that of others who helped shows what idealists often have to do. They have to often risk death to do what is right. So I ask you, my listeners, oh, my gentle listeners who I value so very much, I ask you this. As you go about your work today, please consider what risks you take to protect others who lack the ability to protect themselves. What are those risks that you are taking? Are they bold risks? Or are they small risks? Or do you take no risks at all? You see, in order for us to make this world a better place, we do have to take risks. We do have to stare consequences in the face. Sometimes those consequences are death. Can you imagine the horrible death that Johann and his collaborators would have suffered had they been caught? And we now, that was 1942 and 43, we are now, oh my God, 75 years later. And here we are, still facing oppression in the world, still facing people who seek to take the lives and the rights away from others. And we have many people who are witnesses to that. The question is, what are you doing when you see that? What actions are you taking for others who have no voices of their own? Those who are innocent. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0, a different kind of radio show. I think you get that. One that taps into the idealism that all of us have for a better, more inclusive world. That's really what makes America great. I'd love to hear from you at le2.0radio at gmail.com or visit my website at lekrug.com or buy my book, um, Getting to Ellen, on Amazon, Kindle, and Nook. I'll be back to you in a bit. Thanks. Kevin Ross here, inviting you to our brand new store called Ambibulous. What does Ambibulous mean? It means one who enjoys alcoholic beverages of all sorts. Ambibulous is a Minnesota maker's market. Unlike traditional liquor stores, we feature only craft beer, wine, and spirits made here in Minnesota. We are ready to guide your selections, where you can build your own four or six packs. Find us at 949 Hennepin Avenue East in Northeast Minneapolis or online at ambibulousmn.com. Hello, this is Ellen Krug with Hidden Edges Radio on Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m. My show touches people's hearts. I hear from Twin Cities listeners, and thanks to podcasts, from listeners across the country that the subjects I tackle, like our commonalities and our collective struggle to survive the human condition, really resonate. 
Join me this Sunday from 1 to 2 p.m. on AM 950. Maybe, just maybe, I'll touch your heart too. On behalf of Zero Res, your home stinks. What, you didn't notice? Well, of course you can't smell it because you live there, but the stink is definitely there. That means it's time to call the pros at Zero Res to clean those puppy piddles and coffee spills, and your home will smell fresh and clean, not like a janitor's chemical closet. This month, get three rooms Zero Resified, starting at $139. Plus, this month, save $50 when you get your air ducts Zero Res clean. Call 952-ZERO-RES or visit ZeroResMN.com. Zero Res. Spell it backward or forward, it spells the same. Atheists Talk is the radio show for free-thinking Minnesotans. Listen on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Every Sunday we bring you science, philosophy, politics, and plain old fun from an atheist point of view. Visit our website at minnesotaatheists.org for more details. Tune in to Atheists Talk Radio Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock on KTNF AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's good radio without the good book. Lowry Hill Meats, your neighborhood full-service butcher shop that works directly with family farms. Using whole animals gives Lowry Hill Meats the benefit of preparing custom cuts and dry aging. They offer beef, lamb, goat, pork, and poultry, including whole duck, roasting hens, turkey, quail, pheasant, and Cornish hens. Their sausages are made fresh in-house weekly using 40 rotating recipes. Try their handcrafted sandwiches. They are second to none. Lowry Hill Meats is located at 1934 Hennepin Avenue in Minneapolis or online at LowryHillMeats.com. With spring, it's car wash season. Thank goodness for the Luther Advantage program from Rudy Luther Toyota. Not only do I save 10 cents off per gallon of gas at holiday station stores, but I also get big discounts on car washes. And with free two years of maintenance with every new Toyota purchased, I can get my oil change and spring service done with the best service and maintenance department at Rudy Luther Toyota. Clear your spring checklist with great service from Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169. Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 uh, Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Wow. Um, I don't know about you, and I'm sorry that sometimes I get a little emotional when I speak about uh, the idealists and their work in this world. I'm sorry, but I'm going to continue to speak about them, and I'm sure I'm going to continue to get emotional. Um, and I'm sorry, but we have to grab hearts. I mean, I, my heart gets grabbed, and, and, and frankly, that is what fuels me. That is, those stories. Stories like, of like Johan or Christopher Tripp Zanatis, who I spoke about several weeks ago. That was the New York City firefighter and then an Air Force Reserve helicopter pilot who was killed in Iraq and whom everybody believed might be the very first gay American president. Yes, I'm sorry, my, I keep apologizing, but my, I am going to allow my heart to be affected. You better believe it. So in this B slot, I want to talk about uh, my work a little bit. And not that it's all about me. Please understand that. I know that. Okay, but again, we are a society of storytellers and story listeners. That is how we learn to do things. So I do a lot of trainings around human inclusivity. One of those trainings in particular is gray area thinking. Uh, I've talked about that in the past. It involves some audience participation, the identity game, also what I've talked about. 
I talked about that several shows ago. That identity game involves hanging signing signs representing various identities like race, age, or gender. And then I read prompts such as the identity that garners me the most privilege. And I have people go stand by the sign that um, is responsive for them. And uh, regular listeners will remember that when I talked about the identity game, I shared a story about one sign in particular. The sign says, not good enough slash failure. And I have a prompt that says the identity I struggle with the most in a day-to-day -day basis is, and, um, and I'm finding that 25 to 50% of the room, when they get that prompt, the identity I struggle with the most on a day-to-day -day basis, 25 to 50% are standing under the sign, not good enough slash failure. Um, and when uh, we get done with the identity game, I usually ask people for their reactions. You know, the game itself makes people uncomfortable, particularly us Minnesotans who don't like to be vulnerable. It makes people uncomfortable because it challenges us about how we see ourselves, how we see ourselves alone and in relation to others. Um, and on a day that I gave, uh, we did this um, exercise for an organization. We don't need to get into it, um, who it was. Um, we had, uh, where I, we did the identity game, and the gray area thinking is the larger training. We had a great post-identity um, game discussion. It was challenging, but good. Um, but as we were doing the discussion, one woman raised her hand and said that seeing a colleague stand under certain signs made her want to go hug that colleague. And so I'm like, well, go ahead and do that if you want. And the woman looked at me like, really? And I'm like, yeah, go do it if you wanted to. And I watched her get up and go to another woman. The other woman stood up and there they were in the middle of the room and they hugged. And, the, and I'll tell you, that provoked uh, some emotion, that provoked some wet eyes. I looked around the room. I mean, we had about 100 people in the room. I saw some wet eyes, no question about it. And then I looked around. I asked if anyone else wanted to hug someone. Um, and then another person stood up and went and hugged um, a colleague in the room. Again, more emotion. And wow, I thought, I said, this is what it's all about, bringing people together. That, that really is what my training is about. It's about breaking through the barriers that we impose between ourselves because either we believe that we're the only one in the room suffering or we believe that no one cares about us. All these things that we tell ourselves in our head that make us separated from other humans. Yep, and I'm going to call you out on it. Yep, I sure am. And that's why we do this. This is why we do my work. This gray area thinking, I cannot stress enough, is a just a phenomenal way to break through barriers. So then I asked yet again. I said, um, anyone else want to hug someone? I mean, we're on a roll. And then I saw a woman in her late 30s, early 40s, raise her hand. She got up, and I turned away from her to look uh, to see where she was going to go in the room. And lo and behold, uh, she was headed to me, to Ellie Krug. And she leaned in, and she gave me a hug. I mean, and it was a tight one. And I've got to tell you, I was shocked. So incredibly shocked. It's the first time that it ever happened to me in the middle of a training that someone would want to hug me. And you know what? It was so incredibly powerful, 
and humbling all at the same time. I mean, my heart just, oh, my, my heart grew. Holy cow. Wow. Right there at that moment. And, you know, it's amazing what happens when we open our hearts, when we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, when we get out of our comfort zones, when we realize that we are not alone. I mean, when we have those realizations, um, you know, it, it's about telling other peoples that I see you. I see who you are. I recognize you. And you know what? Seeing another human is far more significant than just simply giving them respect. I mean, respect is tied up into that, no question about it. But seeing a human, and I'm not like talking about seeing someone get on the party bus, woohoo, celebrate me, blow off the fireworks, you know, party, party, party. No, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking just about simply seeing someone just for who they are, that they have a place in this world, that they are valued, that their place exists and that they deserve it. As all humans deserve a spot at the table, all humans deserve to be seen. And that's really what this identity game brings out in people. And so just the act of being able to see someone um, is so incredibly important. Now, I continue to be on this journey, and I, and I am a 61-year-old transgender woman who looks female. If you're on Facebook Live right now, you're looking at me. I don't look too bad today, um, uh, I, but I have my moments for sure, who sounds like a man. And I am on this incredible journey where people allow me to enter their hearts and their minds. You know, I, I, I say that I'm incredibly grateful to be able to occupy just a portion of someone's brain for even a few minutes, just as you're allowing me to do that right now as you're listening to me on the radio. But for me, it is, it is a journey of self-discovery. I don't have all the answers at 61. I mean, I'm providing some of those answers for other people. I have some answers, and I am sharing those, but I am still learning things every day. I'm learning things about others, and I'm learning things about me. And for, for the ability to be on that journey of self-discovery, I am so incredibly grateful and humbled. What are you finding on your journey? Because you are, you're on one. You may not think so. You may think I'm in the same routine every day, you know, and you may be, you may be suffering right now for a variety of reasons, unhappy marriage or relationship, afraid about a health issue, afraid about money, um, uh, that kid that just won't quit for whatever reason um, and not in a good way. <clears throat> yep. We're all there. We're all doing that. And all of that is part of a journey. It's just that when we get caught up in our journeys, we get tunnel vision and we don't know what it is that others are going through. We can't see it, in part because we won't share it. 
because we won't let our hearts, our empathetic hearts, which I just know everyone, all of you listening right now have empathetic hearts. We are so afraid to allow those hearts to show up. We are. I mean, some of us are just so afraid to just say good morning. Hi. How are you? How was your weekend? We're so afraid. But you know what? When we do allow ourselves to show up, when we do um, permit ourselves to be vulnerable, incredible things happen. Like you get a hug in the middle of a room of 100 people. If you like what you're hearing from me, please visit my website at elliekrug.com. Please Sign up. You can go there and sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. It comes out every month electronically. We are approaching 4,000 people on the mailing list for The Ripple. I share stories about human compassion and inclusivity. And you can email me at the station at, at um, le2.0radio at gmail.com. I have my days when I run out of steam, when things are so daunting and when they're overwhelming. But you know what? I always get refreshed. I always get replenished. And particularly when I do this radio show, when I can talk to you, I do. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender radio hosts in the world with Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. Um, tell others about the show if you would. You can get podcasts. We're on Facebook. A big thanks to my producer, Hunter Hawes. Hunter, you are wonderful. Um, and uh, I'll be back next week with more stories about idealism and about trying to change the world. Thank you.